We're back in Mark 13. We've come as far as verse 7. I wanted to back up a little bit and kind of lay some more groundwork for this study of prophecy. Now we looked briefly at the nature of Bible prophecy. I compared it from my perspective like a jigsaw puzzle. We have all the pieces, but it's a matter of putting them together in the right places. There are certain straight-edge pieces that you know we know certain things, and those would be like the border, the framework, and everything. All the other pieces have to fit into that framework. Anything that um, is outside that framework doesn't belong in the puzzle. Right? It's foreign pieces. You want to get rid of anything like that. There are many things that we know for certain. Number one, Jesus is coming back. We know that for certain. He's promised it many times. In Mark 14:62, Jesus tells the people that are interrogating him, I am, that is the Messiah, the Son of God, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, we read, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. So Jesus is coming back. He's been here once. He's returning. When Jesus returns to the earth, He's going to establish an earthly kingdom for a thousand years. This is very explicit as well. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 10, as Jesus was ascending into heaven, the apostles were standing around staring up into the sky. And it says in verse 10, While they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So you expect him to come with the clouds. He lifted off from the Mount of Olives physically and ascended into heaven. And we're told in Zechariah 14, he's going to touch down again on the Mount of Olives when he returns. Revelation 20 and verse 6. Revelation 20, that chapter is concerning this thousand year reign. But in verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So when Jesus comes and touches down, he's going to be setting up this, establishing this kingdom that will last for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, we also know that there will be the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. We also know that Jesus will first return for the church before he comes back and sets foot on the earth. We read this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We read this quite often because it's comforting. In verse 13, Paul writes, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So Paul included him in this group at this point. We who are alive and remain. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The Lord's coming back to take his church unto himself. We see it also in John 14, verses 1 through 3, where Jesus tells them, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he's coming to receive his people to himself, and then sometime later they'll return with him upon the Mount of Olives. We don't know the timing of some of these things. I, I believe in a pre-trib rapture. You know, there are people who believe different things about that. I disagree with them. Uh, later on in Mark chapter 13, we'll talk about it in more detail when we get there, but just reading Mark 13:32, he says, Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. So this context of no man knowing the day or the hour, watching for him, this indicates it's a different time frame than the second coming because uh, from the midpoint of that tribulation period, which we haven't talked about yet, that's another thing we know for certain. From the midpoint of that tribulation period, you can know when the second coming of the people, are, if people are aware, if they know what the scriptures teach, they can know. Now, they may not know the day, but they certainly know that he's coming. And they should be waiting and watching for him. In Hebrews 9 and verse 28, uh, the writer says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. This indicates, this indicates that those who are eagerly waiting for him, he will appear to them. But it doesn't give any indication at that point he's going to appear to anybody else. He's coming apart from sin for salvation. So I think this is another reference to that time when he will come. We can know, we do know as a fact that Israel will be a nation in the end times. There's no question or doubt about it. And we've seen that fulfilled in well, most of our lifetimes. We've seen that fulfilled. Uh, they became a nation in 48 um, I wasn't quite born yet. The Lord was thinking about me. He knew I was coming. Uh, Ezekiel 38, verse 8. God's really speaking to Gog and Magog here who are going to attack Israel in these latter days. In verse 8, he says, After many days you will be visited, and in the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations and now all of them dwell safely. So uh, there were people who 
uh, read the scriptures and they believed this long before Israel became it. As a matter of fact, it looked like it would it would probably be an impossibility for this to ever take place. But they wrote, here's what's going to happen because the scriptures tell us so. Now, by the way, this attack upon Israel has yet to be fulfilled. We know it's going to take place, but we don't know the exact timing of that as well. In Jeremiah 16 as well, verses 14 and 15 Uh, Jeremiah writes and says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. That's what they've always looked back to. The Lord's brought us into the land from Egypt. But the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. And these are just a couple of of references to it. I mean, it's it's throughout the Old Testament. We see it as well in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, in Mark 13, we see these things. Some of these things can only happen if Israel is a nation, and these, some of these things refer to the very end times. Uh, as Jesus speaks of these end time events, he speaks in the context of a Jewish nation in Israel, and he speaks of Jerusalem as a city. Then we know that there will be this seven-year tribulation period, and it's going to be worse than any other time in the history of the world. In Mark 13, verses 19 and 20, he says, In those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of creation, the creation which God created, until this time, nor shall ever be. So the worst time in the history of the world, right at the end of this age. A time like no other. Um, It's outlined for us as well in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, when Gabriel comes to speak to Daniel and tells him, here's what's set for your people. So this is the people of the nation of Israel. He says in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So to sum this stuff all up, summing all this up, these 70 weeks are determined. And Israel had a week of days. They also had a week of years. And so within the context, we would have to read and understand which of these it is. It didn't happen in 70 weeks of days. So it refers to 70 weeks of years. They had a a seven-year period when uh, all the slaves would be set free if they were Israeli slaves. And every seventh year, they were to let their land lie fallow and crops. And so they had this specific designation for a week that was a seven-year period. Uh, It says in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, till the Messiah appears, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So there's going to be sixty-nine weeks of years before the Messiah comes and this can be calculated out and you come to the time of Jesus appearing right to the day that he... uh, comes into Jerusalem on his donkey and presents himself to the nation. And then he says, After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. That is, he'll be killed. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So this final week. Uh, and, and we see that correlated with this last tribulation period that we read about, which is a seven-year period. And uh, we get the same identification in Daniel. Seven years divided in half. Actually, three and a half years, three and a half years. In the middle of the week... It says, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So, this is the abomination of desolation that Jesus is going to speak about in Mark 13. So, we'll talk about that uh, more later. So, we know this tribulation period is coming. We know that there will be a third Jewish temple built before the return of Jesus to the earth because this very um, one, this prince who is to come, we, we know him you know, by the term Antichrist, he's going to enter into the temple, setting himself up, declaring himself to be God and to be worshipped as God. So we know there has to be a third temple. And there were people saying this before it was you know, ever thought about. Matthew thirteen fourteen, which we won't get to today, but it's this abomination of desolation. It can't take place. Unless there's a temple. And Jesus very specifically indicates it's in the future. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, Showing himself that he is God. There's only one temple that can be termed the temple of God. And that's the temple in Jerusalem. And so we know that's going to be rebuilt. And we talked a little bit about all the preparations that have been made. The uh, Temple Institute. I think it's the templeinstitute.org. You can go there and you can see all the things that are are already prepared and waiting. And every year, Gershon Solomon, he and his group start dragging a cornerstone up to the Temple Mount. They're going to lay the cornerstone. And every year, of course, they're forced to return and not not do it. We also know for a fact that there will be an increasing deception and a time of unprecedented deception due to man's rejection of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 again, verse 9. We're told the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all powers, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We know for a fact there will be a world ruler who will be seen as a savior by those who do not know God. We know him as Antichrist. Or uh, the term is in place of Christ. In 1 John, we read this previously, um, chapter 2, verse 18. He says, little children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it's the last hour. So, Anybody that's opposed to Christ is an Antichrist. Anybody that um, comes and says they are the Messiah is an Antichrist. 
but there's a specific individual, the Antichrist, who is being spoken of here. He's a specific person. We know there will be this abomination of desolation which we read about in the temple at the midpoint of the tribulation. And we know that uh, in the last days a system will be in place in which all living will be forced to receive a mark if they're going to buy or sell. Revelation 13, 16, and 17, this one causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And, uh, you know, we know his number, but only in our time do we see the possibility of this taking place where everyone could be forced into a system where, you know, I'm sure, as always, there would be a little underground economy going on as people are trying to survive without taking this this mark. Just as, you know, in Prohibition, you had the, the uh, bootlegging going on and, and running, running the booze and everything. This is going to be for a righteous purpose to preserve life as much as, as they can because, if you know, we know if you take this mark, you're done for. He says everyone who takes this mark is going to be cast into the lake of fire. So these are some of the things that we know for certain will take place in the last days. And there are some things that we don't know. We don't know the timing of some events and how they will align with one another. God still has some mysteries that he has not revealed. In Deuteronomy 29.29, Moses tells the people, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The things he's revealed to us are, are given for the purpose of being able to follow him, obey him, and serve him. We do know that Every prophecy will be fulfilled literally, but we do not know what form some will take. Uh, for example, the locusts in Revelation 9, verses 1 through 11, they come up out of the bottomless pit. This fifth angel sounds his trumpet. Uh, the key to the bottomless pit is given to an angel. He opens the bottomless pit, smoke comes out of the pit, and, and these, out of the smoke come these locusts upon the earth. This is Revelation 9, first part of the chapter. And then they go around stinging people and, and, you know, making them suffer for five months. And people, it says people want to die and they can't die. It's, it's so bad. But we don't know. These seem to be spirit entities, you know, not physical. Or, so are they going to be visible to people? Are they going to be running from these locusts? Or are they just going to be an invisible affliction that takes place? Or, you know, we don't. We just don't know some of these things and and the pieces will become clear as they fit into place and thankfully we won't care or know probably whether these what these things are. I mean we'll we'll have a knowledge of but you know, we're not gonna be we're not gonna be sitting in the arena watching everything going on. We're gonna be with Jesus. Uh, enjoying his presence. Uh, there's this mystery Babylon that's spoken of. We know it's going to happen. It's going to take place. Uh, is it a specific city that's spoken of? Certain, certainly be, need, uh, seem to be a lot of indications that it's uh, these seven hills that a city sits on, which, you know, at the time was a place in Italy uh, called Rome. Uh, this woman 
apparently a religious system. She rides the beast. She sits upon the beast. We don't know how all these some of these things are going to work out. There are those who say, well, yeah, you know, Babylon has to be rebuilt, the, the literal, physical Babylon. And Saddam Hussein started that. It looked like, hey, looks like it could happen, you know. And all his name was on every brick that they started building with. Yeah. We don't know what, you know. Um, Jerusalem was called by John Sodom. And... I think Peter referred to Rome probably as Babylon, but you know, this is stuff that's yet to be, yet to come forth in a real form. And interestingly, the, you know, the UN, much of their symbology is either the Tower of Babel or actually they had an image where a woman is riding a beast. <laughs> and then we don't know much about the U.S. What's going to happen to the U.S.? Are we going to be part of anything or are we going to be gone? You know, uh, the word doesn't tell you. You can try to find hints, you know, like the eagle. Here's the eagle. Oh, yeah, that's us, you know. But it's not really clear that, that we are. And, and with Iran's threats, you've been seeing Iran's threats recently. When we strike America, it's going to be with power. It's going to be severe. They've been making this statement for a few days now. They don't like us. They're not our friend. But we know that Bible, Bible prophecy is sure. Whatever has been determined by God that he has spoken to us about will come to pass. We can know that beyond a doubt. We, we shouldn't have any doubts about anything that's spoken to us in Scripture. And it will all be literally fulfilled. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't take into account figurative language. You know, we, we see that in a passage. We read it like we would any other piece of literature, any other document. Um, and we'll try to give some examples of that uh, later on as we continue through this chapter. In Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he wants him to interpret it, and finally, you know, Daniel receives the knowledge of the dream and the interpretation. In verse 44 of Daniel 2, it says, uh, in the days of these kings, and that's those ten toes, uh, at the foot of the image. He says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. There's the kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish again. And he says, Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. That's the case with all prophecy. Its interpretation is sure. It's certain that it's going to happen. And then in Mark thirteen thirty one, Jesus will say, Heaven and earth, he already said it, but we haven't got there yet. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Pretty bold statement for a guy with a few followers in uh, this Jewish nation. All will be fulfilled. Also, as mentioned before, when we study prophecy, we want to remember that things are not always presented in chronological order. And I think we see some of that in uh, the 
discourse here on Olivet as well. In addition, some prophecies have multiple fulfillments, such as a near and a far fulfillment, that is, prophecies concerning, uh, or for example, prophecies concerning the day of the Lord. These are prophecies of judgment to come. And more specifically, near fulfillments are usually foreshadowings of the actual fulfillment to come. There was, you know, there would be, the prophets would be speaking of the day of the Lord coming, and it was Babylon's coming to destroy the city, or, or Assyria's coming to do this or that. Um, those are foreshadowings. The real fulfillment of the day of the Lord is during that time of tribulation at the end of our age. Uh, many times the prophecies of the day of the Lord were spoken specifically to Israel in relation to their coming exile from the land, but they foreshadow, foreshadow the far greater day of the Lord that is the second coming and preceding tribulation period. This is the true fulfillment. Another example is Isaiah 7:14, uh, where Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz. He, he asked him to ask for a sign, and Ahaz said, oh, I wouldn't do that, you know. That'd be presumptuous. But Ahaz didn't believe in the Lord anyway. And so Isaiah rebuked him and said, Well, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want to ask for a sign? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, he goes on in the context. Uh, Isaiah and his wife, the prophetess, have a son. and But he's not called Emmanuel. He's called something like Swift of the Booty. And something to the prey. I mean, it's a, it's, his name indicates that hard times are ahead. You know, things are not going to go well. Uh, so there's this, you know, part of this prophecy is that historical narrative that takes place. But, of course, we know uh, in its true fulfillment, this is Jesus coming, actually being born literally, born of the virgin. Another example is the abomination of desolation prophecy spoken of by Daniel the prophet uh, that Jesus references here in this discourse. A near fulfillment in Antiochus Epiphanes, and we'll be talking more about him and this, this fulfillment in the future. The full fulfillment is in Antichrist at the midpoint of the tribulation period. Um, beginning then with verse 7, <laughs> which is where, as far as we had come, he says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Uh, Jesus had spoken to them about deception. You know, that was the first thing he told them is beware that no one deceives you. And then he begins speaking about some of these things that he speaks of as beginnings of sorrows, conditions that will be taking place in the last days. This discourse speaks partially to the time of the apostles, this chapter, but obviously goes beyond their time. Uh, hopefully this will become clear as we go through this discourse. Everything Jesus speaks about here is in the future. But some of it applies and may be applied to the immediate future. Now again, it's some of maybe a foreshadowing of partial fulfillment. And some relates to the distant future or what he refers to here as the end. The end is not yet if you see these things. So Jesus says you... 
will hear of wars and rumors of wars. One thing we see in this passage in most prophecy is the centrality of Israel. Prophecy is usually from the perspective of Israel, the center of the world, even though it does include or speak to other nations. Jesus, or the Christ Messiah, is at the very center of prophecy. We read in Revelation 19.10, John's falling down to worship this angel, and he says to me, See that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Uh, That's the central focus, the central point of prophecy. Uh, And he's the king of Israel. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. But first of all, he's the king of Israel. Now, since I was born, the U.S. has been in a few wars. And there have been some rumors of war and some unofficial wars. There's an illusion that there is only a war if one is officially declared. That's not the case. I think our our longest war in our history is an undeclared war. In the world, there has probably not been a time in my lifetime when there was not a war somewhere in the world. After I wrote this, I was checking what other people had said, and I read Henry Morris's comment. This is what he said. Worldwide, at least one major war has been going on in 11 out of every 12 years since the time of Christ. At the present world time, there are estimated to be at least 40 wars. And this, he wrote this, you know, some time ago. He's with the Lord now. There are estimated to be at least 40 wars, small and large, civil or international, going on in the world. Now, there are many conflicts that are internal to nations now that really are they're on the scale of war. Uh, But, of course, they're not a declared war. In other words, there have always been wars, and when there haven't been wars, there have been rumors of wars in the world. These things Jesus points to in verses 7 and 8 are the beginnings of sorrows. These things are a result of the fall of man and the curse upon creation. These have always occurred throughout history. But sorrows is, the word is, birth pains. And we know that they increase in intensity and frequency as the time of birth nears. Some of you women can attest to that fact. G. Campbell Morgan says, says this, Our Lord's outlook upon this age was not that of one in which there should be a gradual cessation of strife between the nations by the victory of the preaching of his gospel until the whole earth should be reduced by that preaching to a condition of peace. That's not you know, that's what's being taught by many today, but that's not what the scriptures teach, and that's that wasn't what the Lord was teaching. In other words, uh, it's not a post millennial thing. It's not the church establishing the kingdom. Jesus comes back to establish the kingdom. If we consider wars and rumors of war in the light of Israel, it's very clear that since the establishment of the nation in 1948, they have experienced nothing but wars or rumors of wars. They didn't experience any before recent history, at least since 70 A.D., because there was no nation to have wars and rumors of wars. They're currently dealing with multiple fronts that could erupt in war at any moment, plus the threats from Iran to annihilate them. 
Israel has again uh, recently made statements concerning their firm intention to act in their own defense, regardless of what the nations of the world think of it. You know, we are putting a lot of pressure on Israel not to act in certain ways, such as destroying Iran's nuclear capability. Israel is not going to care. If, if at some point they have to go totally against the U.S., they will do so. And because, you know, never again. That's been their cry since the Holocaust. And they will not stand by and depend upon other nations to ensure their safety. We are told that Israel and Jerusalem will be a big problem in the last days. And amazing prophecy in its fulfillment. In Zechariah chapter 12, uh, starting in the first verse, he says, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, you know, this, this time of tribulation that's coming, it's a time of uh, tribulation upon Israel from the Lord to wake them up, to turn them to Him. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel, thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Just in case you're not sure who this is. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. It shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Well, this was spoken, of course, before Jesus, before his discourse on the Mount of Olives, right? So there are those who say, well, all this happened in 70 AD. You know. But Jesus talks about these things as still being future. And... When 70 A.D. happened, there was one nation that was coming against Jerusalem and against Israel, and that was the Roman nation. At this time, there's never been a time when all nations of the earth are gathered against it, and that is the time that is going to come. And, and you know, we talked about not being sure about the U.S. If if we're still here as a, as a nation, we're going to be one of those that comes against uh, Judah and Jerusalem. Because all nations will. Uh, when uh, the Ezekiel 36 through 38 uh, attack upon Israel, that's not all nations of the world, by the way. That's just certain countries that are named. And uh, when they come down, I'm trying to remember where I was going with this. Yeah, it wasn't. America, if we're still around, when that invasion takes place, there are certain nations that object. They don't come to defend Israel, but they say, hey, what are you doing? You're coming down to take a spoil? So there's a possibility, you know, maybe we're on that side. But when it comes to the battle of Armageddon, the war of Armageddon, all nations are going to be gathered against Jerusalem and Judah. And when they see the clouds part and Jesus coming back, they're going to be against him as well. So this, this Jerusalem being a cup of drunkenness, I mean, it's, it'd be unheard of even a hundred years ago, probably. You know, but it's very real now. It's absolutely true. They're the, they're the focus of the whole world's animosity. I mean, how many, uh, how many resolutions has the UN condemned them with and ignoring China, ignoring Iran, ignoring you know, all the 
nations in Africa that are knocking off people right and left. Uh, but Israel is the focus of the world's animosity. And we see it. It's fulfilled in our day. In verse 9 of Zechariah 12, he then says, It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Over in chapter 14, he does destroy all those nations that come against Jerusalem. Here he says, when that happens, I'm going to seek to destroy all the nations, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Jerusalem has to be there, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In this context, Jesus tells them and us, don't be troubled. The people of Israel are amazingly not troubled, especially those who know Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, I don't see how they can't be just totally neurotic, you know, every day. But uh, amazingly, they're not troubled. It's like, okay, we'll just take care of this. You know, somebody tries to oppose us, we're just going to... As we believers in Christ Jesus see these things beginning to come to pass and increase, we certainly should not be troubled. You know, we, we may live in troubling times, but we're secure in His presence, never to be separated from Him regardless of what our circumstances may be or may become. In Luke chapter 21, verse 25, this is the same discourse from Luke's account. He says, Jesus says there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity. The sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now I'm a pre-trib rapture guy. I think you know we're going to be out of here by then. He says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So you've got this distress of nations with perplexity. That means we don't see any way out. It's totally hopeless. And men's hearts failing them from fear. We don't have to experience those kinds of things because we can rest in the Lord. Jesus says, you see these things, wars, rumors of wars? Such things must happen. The end is not yet. So the things Jesus speaks of in verses 7 and 8 have always been going on. We won't get to verse verse 8 today. They are the beginning of sorrows or birth pains. Well, I thought we would. <laughs> beginning of sorrows or the beginning of these earth pains. And when we hear of a massive earthquake or famines or pestilences, it does not mean the end has come or that we are in the final great tribulation. There are people who teach that we're in the tribulation period now. No. Uh, this is this is nothing compared to what the tribulation will be. Yes. And for us, the best is yet to be. There are still things that must take place to initiate the final events of this age. But note that there is nothing that must take place before the rapture, the coming of the Lord for His church, His body. And there aren't any signs given for that except... Watch. Be ready. Because you don't know. 
the time in which I come. And we only have one task. We, our only task in these times, we can simplify it, make it just one thing, to be faithful to His call and to glorify Him, shining as lights in the midst of a dark and darkening world. The times are getting complex and they're increasing in complexity. Our relationship with Jesus is simple and complete. And He tells us, do not be troubled. In John 14:27, speaking to the apostles, He said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And then in John 16:33, a song that we sing says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So we're promised tribulation in the world. We shouldn't be surprised by that. So, you know, uh, there are those who say, well, you people that believe in a pre-trib rapture, you're just trying to escape tribulation. Well, there's a difference between tribulation and the great tribulation. Uh, the great tribulation is God's wrath being poured out upon the earth, and he, he won't do that to the church, with the church. But tribulation, certainly. And, you know, they'll talk about, well, we'll see here in a moment. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Paul says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, or labored in vain. That's that's our role. That's all we have to do is let our light shine. Stay close to Him. Let Him shine forth in us. Over in Luke chapter 21, again this same discourse, uh, in verse 28, Jesus says, When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. So our eyes should be up. I think particularly He's talking to some of those people in the very end times, but certainly for us as well. Our eyes should be up upon Him. And our redemption is drawing nigh. And then in Luke twenty-one thirty-six, Jesus says, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. This is an exhortation that's given that we can take heed to Pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things. You know, the preterb rapture is we're accused of having an escapist theology. I'm all about escaping that stuff. You know, I don't have any problem admitting. You know, and that doesn't mean we're going to escape all tribulation. Where that's not what the preterb rapture teaches. You know, we we may have incredibly hard times. We may, you know end up being martyred in some situations. It doesn't seem possible now in our society, you know, but it's becoming more hostile. And, you know, there have been those probably that have been martyred in individual instances, but so far it is not a mass uh, type of a thing going on. They are compiling lists now, by the way, of uh, dissenters from the official line, you know, so 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and that's, you know, that's always been the case of the church. You know, it's not a new thing, although that certainly has increased in frequency and intensity. There are a lot more people. And, you know, verse 8, we'll see some of the figures of the deaths that have been occurring just in, you know, this last century or so. Christians. Christians only. So certainly, uh, we were promised, you know, all who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And Jesus says, you know, uh, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. In the midst of that tribulation, we're to be of good cheer, for he's overcome the world. Our, our reward is yet to be. It's not, you know, we, we don't look for it in this life or in this world. If we have some in this life world, that's that's like a bonus, you know. That's that's great. I, you know, I love to having been born in this country, growing up in this country, the blessings that have been there, uh, and you know, I grieve for our brothers and sisters around the world that are that are suffering as well. Uh, it doesn't mean we'll escape, but as we experience any kind of of tribulation. It may be unrelated to persecution. I mean, I think effects of the fall or tribulation, you know, and illnesses and um, aging, all those things are curse upon the earth, you know. So, as we will continue talking about this uh, beginnings of sorrows, that's actually at the end of verse 8. Uh, and as we think about this, the these sorrows have been going on since the fall. That's that's when the birth pains began. Romans chapter eight is the whole creation's groaning and moaning together, and it has been because of the fall. Um, but the frequency and intensity is really going to ramp up during that last seven years. That's it's, it's sort of like to me when the water breaks, you know. And so we're not necessarily going to see a, a big uptake, uptick in the frequency or intensity. We may see some as that approaches. But um, during that period, there are going to be birth pains like, you know, it's about to give birth to a new age, a new world. So that's, there's a lot of intense birthing going on there. And so... Uh, that's when I think these things really ramp up. Well, we made it through verse 7. But, you know, I wanted to give a little more background or foundation. I think I mentioned some of those things last week, but I wanted to kind of summarize it better, put it in a, a format or perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, somebody somebody did once accuse me of going through Genesis in real time. <laughs> All right. Well, it is. And these things, I mean, these discourses, they can be kind of confusing if you're new to them, or you know, you haven't really spent a lot of time in them and thinking about them and. I haven't really had a chance to teach through one of these. Um, I mean, I could have chosen when Chuck asked me to speak or something, but it, it was never something that I felt led to, to go through. So going through this in Marcus is my first 
time really uh, looking at it from a studying perspective, you know, I'm really going into it. And so I'm looking forward to the things that come forth here as we continue on through it. Again, a lot of things we know, some things we don't know. And we know those things we don't know, We many of them we know that they're things. We just don't know where they fit and where the piece fits or how it how it'll all work out. Uh, but he's in control. He's got, you know, uh, a lot of the prophets uh, had this thought you know, also. A lot of the prophets, like in, in Peter, he says, they wondered, who's this about? What's this for? You know, and then it was revealed to them that it was for us in our days that they were speaking. But Jesus doesn't have that. He knows, you know. He knows what he's talking about. And so it's, it's clear to him. And so the things he's giving us, although, again, I don't think it necessarily is everything in order here, but he's given us stuff that he knows pertains to the people he's speaking to and the people in the future. It's for us to discern and find out exactly what's what.